You take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. And while you're turning there, I want you to contemplate this question. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What's the thing that stirs up fear in your heart? Uh, Maybe even this morning you You're under a shadow, you're under a cloud of fear, and it's weighty and oppressive and dominating. Fear is a reality that we all face in some shape or form, and fear is a dominant theme in Genesis 32, which may be a little surprising, because we saw last week at the end of chapter 31, Jacob riding high on the wake of a great victory. For 20 years, he had been in exile from the promised land and under the oppressive tyranny of his uncle Laban. But God intervened and and he rescued and he vindicated Jacob. It was vindication for Jacob and humiliation for Laban and he lived happily ever after, right? Screen goes dark, credits roll. No, that's not how your life works. God delivers you from one trial and often right around the corner, here comes another one. That's life. Because on this side of heaven, on this side of heaven, God's work in your life is not done as he continues to mold you and shape you and teach you through the trials. That's his purpose for trials. And God's work with Jacob is not done. Jacob the liar, Jacob the cheat, Jacob the swindler, the man who spent so much of his life stiff-arming God, has now, for these past 20 years, been growing and changing. The trial of the past has been tools of God's loving discipline, shaving away the rough edges around Jacob's heart. But Jacob is a work in progress, and God has even more to teach him. And the next trial that was absolutely essential for him to deal with, to go through, was the trial of fear. Now, he already had to deal with some fears in regards to Laban, but what's coming next is going to amp up that fear even more because Jacob still has some unfinished business from his past. He still has to face and deal with his brother Esau. Remember remember him? The big, scary, hairy guy, Esau, the one whom Jacob exploited and stole the blessing from, which, by the way, he didn't have to do that because God had promised that the blessing would come to Jacob, a blessing that not only included the the full share of the family inheritance, but also heirship uh, to the covenant of God that that God made with his grandfather Abraham, which included uh, the guarantees of many offspring that would form a nation that would inherit a land, the land of Canaan, and eventually save the world. But Jacob didn't trust God to follow through on that promise. He instead trusted in his own resources and cleverness, swindling the blessing from his brother. And now, Jacob's going to have to deal with a kind of fear that probably just about all of us have had to face, the fear of past undealt with sins and the repercussions of those things coming back to haunt you. Twenty years has passed since Jacob cheated Esau out of the blessing. And nevertheless, that incident would have haunted his mind and burdened its, his conscience. It, it never completely left his mind, and neither did the threats of Esau, who plotted to get revenge by murder. And out of all the things Jacob had feared in his life, 
Esau and retribution for the sins of his past was number one on that list. Laban was scary for sure, but the move from Laban to Esau is like jumping out of the frying pan and right into the fire. And now the time for reckoning has come as he faces his fear. And as we explore this text today, my prayer is that we will find strength and hope as we face our fears. So please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. This is Genesis chapter 32, and we'll read on down through verse 12. God's word says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said... I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on me, a sinner, as I attempt to do the the weighty and sobering task of preaching your word. Father, help my friends here in this room who are also sinners who have the weighty and and sobering task of listening to your word and receiving it and believing it. Father, would you bless the remainder of our time together this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are four important lessons here that Jacob learns that are really for all of God's people. And the first thing we learn is that God comforts His people with reminders of His presence. God comforts His people with reminders of His presence. Chapter 31 ended with the non-aggression pact that Jacob made with Laban. And then chapter 32 verse 1 says that Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Now if that feels kind of familiar to you, it should. Jacob is ending a 20-year exile from the promised land. And do you remember what Jacob saw at the beginning of his, of his exile? Uh, let's refresh our memory. Let's turn back to chapter 28. 
this is when Jacob was at Bethel, uh, during what at that time was the lowest and darkest point in Jacob's life. Running from home, running from the wrath of Esau, to- running towards the threat of Laban. He was homeless and friendless and penniless, and Jacob camped out alone in the wilderness. He falls asleep and he dreams. And, and if you remember, he saw that, stair- that stairway from heaven coming down to earth and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And look at what the Lord says to him in verse 15 of chapter 28. He says, I am with you and will keep you or guard you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you. God reassures Jacob of his protective presence and that stairway connecting heaven and earth taught Jacob that earthly realities and heaven realities are equally real. But more than that, they're actually linked together which was a revelation for Jacob, who, like many people today, live life exclusively thinking of the physical realm, living as if God and spiritual realities are totally irrelevant and totally impractical, and that that all you ultimately have to rely on is your own wits and resources. That was Jacob. But that dream that he had at Bethel shattered that notion. Now, turn forward again to chapter 32, and here at the end of Jacob's exile, God is reinforcing that lesson again as Jacob runs from the threat of Laban and back towards Esau. He again sees angels, and God is giving the exact same reassurance that I will be with you. There's a, there's a military flavor to what Jacob is witnessing as he sees these angels, when you, when you think about angels, don't think about fat little babies with wings, cute and cuddly. Don't think Cupid. In the Bible, angels are powerful and deadly and terrifying warriors. And when Jacob sees these awesome beings, he is clearly startled. Look at, at verse 2. And when Jacob saw, saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim means two camps. And the idea is that there was, of course, Jacob's own camp that he could see all along, but now he is shocked as he realizes that there is another camp, camp next to, perhaps even camped around him and his family. There's, there's camped around them a host of angelic beings as God does something for Jacob that he does not do for most of us. He graciously just for a moment, peels back the curtain of reality, and he reminds Jacob that there is so much more going on than what meets the eye. As God permits Jacob to get a brief glimpse into the spiritual realm to show him what's really going on, to show him the full picture. And that message for Jacob is a message for you this morning. If you're a child of God, you have the exact same assurance as you battle the fears of your own life. Whatever it is you're going through right now, whatever challenges and trials that God has called you to face, whatever fears are coming upon you, whatever fears are threatening to overwhelm you, don't make the critical mistake that so many Christians make, which is looking at your trials and your fears through the grid of your five senses. Because if you're processing the experiences of your life exclusively through what you can see and perceive in the physical realm, then you do have great cause for great fear. But 
Scripture is telling you that there is more to what is happening in your life than meets the eye. God is actively working behind the scenes, even through the most difficult and fearful of situations. There's a powerful moment later on in the Bible. It's in 2 Kings, where the king of Syria comes against the prophet Elisha. And he surrounds the city with a massive army of horses and chariots and soldiers. And now, based on our human senses and our perception of reality, that's an impossible situation. It's all over. There's no way that this is going to end well. In fact, that's how Elisha's servant feels. He totally freaks out, and he says, alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, Elisha's servant was operating Uh, on the basis of only taking the physical realm into account. But Elisha knew better, and he knew that if a servant would but just grasp the reality of God's presence and protection, that he would be encouraged. Now think about this. How many times are we like Elisha's servants? Not like Elisha. (laughs) I wish. More often than not, I am more like Elisha's servant And we enter into difficult and fearsome circumstances as if the only reality there is is what we can perceive with our senses. And and then so then if that's the case, then what do we do then? We freak out. We fall apart. We sink into despair because we believe that we are alone and without protection and without help and without support. But the Scriptures are telling you this morning to be of good cheer The Lord is always, always working behind the scenes, and more than that, He is always working on behalf of His people. His help and His support are immediately by our side, even when we can't see it. And He often gives that help and support through invisible, angelic servants. So the Scripture says in Psalm 91, 11, for He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. I think about the book of Hebrews that that says, are not angels ministering spirits that are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, Now, none of this means that Christians will never face physical harm or never face persecution. But what God's protection does mean is that while we are in this life, that even when God calls us to go through affliction, He will preserve us through the affliction to ensure that His good plans and purposes will never be thwarted by any opposition. And Yes, thank you for that. And so as the, as the storm clouds of fear seek to overwhelm your soul, let your eyes be open to the reality that David spoke of in Psalm 34, that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. So God comforts His people with reminders of His presence. What's more, and this is my second point, the assurance of God's presence gives God's people courage to do hard things. The assurance of God's presence gives God's people courage to do hard things. So fortified by the vision, Jacob now moves forward to do something that he has dreaded for 20 years. Look at verse 3. Jacob 
sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now, you can go ahead and put up the map here, just get a little bit of, a little bit of bearing. Do I have the little clicker? I don't. I don't have my laser pointer. Oh, well. Well, at the top of the map, <laughs> Jacob is approaching from, from the north. And the promised land, well, you should be able to see it, is on the, on the left there. That's, that's Canaan. To the very, very south is Edom. And that's where Esau lives. Uh, and, the, and the point here is that Jacob does not have to go all the way down to Edom to get to Canaan. All, all, all Jacob has to do is just take a sharp right, and he's there. I don't need any more, but thanks anyway. I appreciate it, brother. You're a good deacon. Was. Was. Yeah, that's right. Hey, you're still... Deacon means servant, so you're still serving. So, there you go. All right. So, the point here is that Jacob is deliberately going out of his way to have an encounter with Esau. This is a deliberate choice. Again, he doesn't have to go down there to go to Canaan. Verses 4 and 5 give us the content of Jacob's message to Esau. And as we read this, I want you to ask yourself, what do you see here in this message that reflects a change in Jacob based on everything that we know about Jacob so far? Look at verse 4. Here's the message. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Do you notice some things there that are a little bit different than the Jacob maybe that you had known previously? Notice the absolute humility of Jacob. What does he call Esau? My Lord. (laughs) And what does he call himself? Your servant. Those are shocking words when we read this in the larger context of the story. Uh, From the very beginning of his relationship with Esau, Jacob has wanted to be Lord. Jacob has wanted to be in charge. Jacob didn't want anybody, didn't want to be anybody's servant. He wanted people to serve him. Folks, even when they were babies in the womb, Jacob is grappling with Esau, and when Esau is pulled out first, Jacob is right behind, tiny little baby fingers uh, clutching his brother's heel, as if this little baby is demanding that he will be first, not Esau. All of Jacob's past interactions with Esau have been condescending and manipulative in his effort to be on top. But now, he calls Esau Lord, and he calls himself servant. Bruce Walkie writes that Jacob begins to right the arrogance towards his brother. Like Abraham with Lot, Jacob takes the first step toward giving up the rights of his election to the blessing, trusting God to fulfill the promise. His rivalry with Esau is about over. And, and then Jacob goes on and he gives a quick recap of the past 20 years. In case you're, you're wondering where I went, Esau, I was with our uncle Laban, and I've gotten really rich. Now, he isn't boasting there. Jacob is not boasting. Instead, I think Jacob, in essence, is saying, don't worry, I don't want anything from you. I'm doing fine. I'm well provided for, so you don't have to worry about me being a drain on your resources. And also, I think maybe in the 
revealing of his, all of his possessions, there might be a hint here of a gift that will be coming to Esau. But then, here's the huge part. Verse 5, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob seeks a restored relationship. The desire to find favor in his sight is a desire to receive Esau's forgiveness. And a desire to receive Esau's forgiveness means, guess what? That he is admitting that he was in the wrong. And you know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, who are you and what have you done with Jacob? This, This is a different man. And praise God. Praise God for 20 years of trial and hardship and affliction. Because Jacob never would have changed otherwise. Jacob needed to be humbled and broken and brought low before his eyes were open to his own sin. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, the psalmist says, but now I keep your word. Could it be, could it be that God's sending of affliction in your life is his gracious means of humbling you and bringing you so low that your heart might be softened, that you might move from pride to humility, that you might move from wanting to be served to being a servant, moved to a place that you might love others well. Now, I want you to notice something else. This is very important. Jacob is on his way to the promised land to fulfill God's mission and to receive and enjoy the fullness of God's blessing. But he instinctively realizes that before he does that, he must reconcile with and make peace with his brother, confessing his sin and seeking forgiveness. And in this, Jacob is exemplary for us. If Jacob is diligently pursuing peace with his brother, even though it is a fearful thing to do, how much more should God's people today in the church pursue peace with their brothers and sisters in Christ? As with Jacob, as with Jacob, you will not fully enjoy and experience the blessing of God until you obey Matthew 5, where Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, this is applicable to all Christians, but I want to speak first and primarily to the members of this church. Because if you are a member of this church, God holds me as your pastor accountable for shepherding you and keeping watch over your souls. And I will tell you that the refusal to reconcile when there is something between you and somebody else in this church will sow seeds of division and discord in this church that could eventually kill this church and bring it down. It's happened to other churches. Don't think it can't happen here. The Apostle Paul later on writes that broken relationships can actually ruin a church. He says in Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, you will be consumed by one another. If you know that your brother or sister in Christ has something against you, make it right. And obey Ephesians 4, which says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And too often we are too chicken to fully obey that verse. Me too. Me too. I was just talking with someone the other day about just how there can be a culture in churches, and it happens even here, where the members are afraid to talk 
to one another about hard and uncomfortable things and reconcile and work things out and make peace. And if we can't get over that immature fear, we will never be everything that we should be as a church and experience and enjoy the fullness of God's blessing. Matthew 5 is where you know someone has something against you. And then the other one is Matthew 18, where you have an issue with someone else. Either way, the call is to seek that person out and make peace, and I, as your pastor, am urging you to do that. If you're the offender, make it right. If you're the offended, and if you can't overlook it and forget about it and move on, then you need to move to make it right and do it before you return to worship next Sunday in the spirit of Matthew 5. I don't care how awkward it might be. I don't care how scary or intimidating it might be. It was scarier for Jacob, I guarantee you. I doubt any member here has threatened to kill you. If not, talk to me and we'll have a conversation about that and, and, and work that out. Jacob is, 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 is encouraged and motivated by the presence of God and the protection of God in his life, and he moves forward to do this hard thing. You can do the same thing as God is with you as well. And Jacob here is compelled to humble himself and to be a peacemaker and do the right thing. Jacob instinctively realizes something that we all must come to grips with, and that is is that if we as God's people really want to move forward with God's mission in the world, we must at the same time prioritize the striving for peace in our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another. Now, if we were writing the script of our lives, um, we would have it that whenever we move forward in faith to do the right thing, that immediately things would get all better and it's all rainbows and unicorns. But sometimes doing the right thing can at least initially make things even harder. Does that ever happen to you? You do the right thing and all of a sudden it just seems like everything is getting worse? Well, that leads to my next point. God grows his people not by removing affliction, but by sending them into it. God grows his people not by removing affliction, but by sending them into it. Surely, Jacob is sitting there. He is anxiously awaiting the return of these messengers, and and he's hoping that they're going to come back with a word that says, your brother forgives you, and he looks forward to your visit. It's not the message he got. It's not the message he got. Verse 6, the messengers return saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. 400 men. That's that's a rather ominous message. I mean, you you could interpret that in a few different ways, I guess. It's kind of like when you're texting somebody and you're kind of hoping everything's okay and you get a text back and you're like, well, what does that mean? 400 men was the size of a standard armed militia. (laughs) If if you recall back in Genesis 14, um, Abraham went to battle against the four kings to rescue Lot and he attacked them with a unit of 318 men. So 400 is a pretty sizable force. Esau's been pretty busy these past 20 years. He's not only grown wealthy, but he's grown powerful. He's built up an army, and Jacob assumes, I think what probably most of us would assume, that if you're coming with 400 men, you're probably not coming to have a tea party. Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. How quickly the encouragement and memory of Mahanaim has faded. (laughs) The thing that Jacob thinks is true affects him more than what he knows is true. 
Jacob knows for a fact that God is with him. But as his mind is fixed on his circumstances and, just as important, on his interpretation of those circumstances, he is totally destabilized and shaken with fear. And, and let's not be hard on Jacob. We do the same thing. We are often like this also. God promises all kinds of wonderful things to us, and, and we hear them in a sermon or, or during a time of relative peace in our lives, and we nod and we say amen. But then... When we are hit by the trials of life, what we say we believe is really put to the tests. Now, Jacob here is uh, is between a rock and a hard place. He can't retreat. He can't go backwards. You know why? Who's behind him? (laughs) Going backwards would violate his pact with Laban and incur his uncle's wrath. Laban is behind him. Esau is in front of him. There's no escape here. There's no way out of this. The kind of plotting and scheming and manipulating that served Jacob so well in the past cannot help him now. And so he divides his people into two groups to try to minimize the casualties because he is convinced that disaster is imminent and there is absolutely nothing that he can do. And and this means, brothers and sisters, that At this point, God has Jacob exactly where God wants Jacob. Folks, this is worse than chapter 28. This now is Jacob's new low. This is his new lowest and darkest point. As all of the sins of the past come rushing back to torment his guilty conscience. And make no mistake, y'all, the reason why he was able to boldly confront Laban in the last chapter was because he had a clear conscience. He, he, was, he was clear and clean of the things that Laban was accusing him of. But whenever you have a guilty conscience, that increases your sense of fear and insecurity and instability. He has never fully dealt with what he did to Esau. And he feels now that payback is coming. And worse, he knows that he deserves it. But, Even in this moment, God is being gracious and loving to Jacob. You're like, well, how's that? How's this gracious and loving? We tend to think that if God were gracious and loving, he would remove the trial from us and immediately eliminate the thing that we are afraid of. God sometimes does that, but often he does not. Instead, God often grows our faith by permitting into our lives circumstances that force us to rely on Him alone, where God kicks away all the other crutches and all the other safety nets and all of the other things that we tend to rely on, our own strength, our own resources, the things that are in our lives outside of God that we depend on for hope and security and peace. God in his kindness will take those things away from you, not to curse you, but to bless you. Now remember, this whole Jacob narrative is about blessing. The whole Jacob narrative is ultimately about the blessing of God. And the prerequisite thing that must happen before Jacob or anyone can fully experience the blessing is for us to realize that there is no other thing in our lives that we can hope in. So only when we are brought to the end of ourselves 
that we can learn to rely exclusively on God and then receive all that He has for us. That was the whole point of a very scary and difficult trial that the Apostle Paul and his companions once went through. And and reflecting back on that experience, Paul could perceive God's purpose in it all with kind of that 2020 hindsight. And God's purpose and the the affliction that he put Paul through was not meaningless and, and and it was not out of meanness. Instead, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And now that God has kicked away all of Jacob's props and the things he has relied on in the past, where Jacob himself feels as if he has received the sentence of death, literally, he has no choice now uh, to, to rely not on himself, but on God, who raises the dead. And with nothing else and no one else to hope in, Jacob now hopes in God, and God alone, which leads to my fourth observation, and that is that God's people can confidently pray because of God's plan for them. God's people can confidently pray because of God's plan for them. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why we don't pray as we ought is because like Jacob, we are self-reliant and trust more in ourselves than in God. Let's just be real about that. Let's just be honest about that. But Jacob now is being stripped of that self-reliance and how he approaches God not only demonstrates further changes that are happening in his heart, but also it demonstrates how we should pray. How we should pray. And by the way, this is noteworthy. This is the first time we actually see Jacob praying. That's cause for a celebration. He hasn't prayed before in the text. But when he does finally pray, whoa, what a prayer. What a prayer. Who would have thought that the longest prayer in the book of Genesis would come from the lips of Jacob? And perhaps the most remarkable thing about this prayer is verse 10, where he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Folks, catch that there in the beginning of verse 10. He confesses a lack of worthiness. And again, I ask, who is this man? What a transformation in Jacob's heart. Jacob is indeed unworthy, and the punchline is is that he's the last to know. (laughs) We've all known it from the start. The other characters in the story knew it. Now, he finally gets it. All his life, Jacob has tried to fight and grasp and wrestle for everything precisely because he thought he was worthy and he was entitled And this confession of unworthiness is essentially a confession of sin. If he is not worthy of the least of God's kind deeds to him, it means that he recognizes that he is worthy of nothing but God's judgment. Indeed, Jacob knows full well that if he gets what he deserves, he would get the sword of Esau running him through. More than ever, Jacob realizes that he is a lowly, unworthy sinner. 
And folks, this is one of the most important marks of spiritual maturity. A sign that the Holy Spirit is really working in your life is that in your heart and mind, the grace of God is magnified. You're you're increasingly aware of all that He has done, and also at the same time, you're increasingly aware of your own unworthiness and your own sin. Some people think, well, well, as I grow more in Christ, I won't see myself as a sinner. (laughs) It's actually the exact opposite. You'll actually have a heightened awareness of your sin. Folks, the mark of immaturity is self-righteousness, finger-pointing, blame-shifting, and being more appalled at the sins of others than your own. The mature believer, on the other hand, aware of what's happening in his own heart more than the hearts of others, will increasingly say, alongside the Apostle Paul, that I am the chief of sinners. Jacob, in this prayer, speaks of God's kindness and God's faithfulness. Bruce Walkie writes that, that that Hebrew word for kindness speaks of a superior who out of kind character meets the needs of a covenant partner who cannot help himself. And that Hebrew word for faithfulness signifies that although the superior has no obligation to meet the need, the superior can always be counted on to do so. Jacob's prayer is absolutely beautiful. It's beautiful in that in it, he humbles and he abases himself as low as you can go while simultaneously exalting and magnifying the amazing grace of God as high as it can be. And brothers and sisters, this is exemplary in how we should approach God. We are low, he is high. We must decrease, he must increase. And so what Jacob is confessing here is not only his own unworthiness, but also the amazing grace of God, that everything good that has come to Jacob's way has come exclusively, exclusively through God's grace. And when you get, when you get to that place in your heart, and you really, really believe that, that's a beautiful place to be, and it makes you into a beautiful person. It makes you into a deeply humble person, more fit for the service of God. And folks, it is only through the afflictions and the trials and the fears of Jacob that have brought him to his knees and brought him to this point. God knows exactly what he is doing in his dealings with his servants. But there's more. Look at verse 11. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau, from from uh, from the hand of my brother, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Now here Jacob is real and raw and honest with God about his fears, which is exactly what we all need to be before God. There's no point in hiding it. It's not like God doesn't know what's going on in your heart. So, so, so let it all out. Release that to God. Talk to God about that. But here's the clincher. After you have confessed your fears and after you have confessed your sin and after you have humbled yourself, only at that point are you ready to say what Jacob says next. And this is the key to facing your fears. He says, deliver me from the hand of Esau for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. And then verse 12, but you said, but you said, You understand what Jacob is doing here? He's giving God the reason why God should deliver him. And Jacob does not give God a list of reasons that have anything to do with Jacob's merit. 
that have anything to do with Jacob's goodness or Jacob's deservedness. Jacob doesn't say, be merciful to me and deliver me because I, and then you fill in the blank. Instead, it's deliver me because you, because you said, and then he prays God's words back to him. He says, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. In other words, Lord, what is at stake here is not ultimately me and my life, but you and your reputation and the validity of your word. This is what's on the line. If, if I die here, if my family is wiped out here, if Esau comes and he kills me and he buries me in the sand, those promises will come to an end and heaven forbid. It can never be. Your word is true always. And so on the basis of your word, Lord, come. Come and save. Come and rescue. Come and deliver. Brothers and sisters, that's how you pray. As you approach God, you you ought to weave that kind of language into your petitions. Lord, you have said in your word. Jacob realizes that the faithfulness of God to keep his word is the only thing that he has to stand on to give him hope. 17th century Puritan Thomas Manton said that one way to get comfort is to plead the promise of God in prayer. Show him his handwriting. God is tender of his word. In other words, pray back God's promises to God. And when you do that, you can be confident that he will respond. The Apostle John wrote that this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And how do you know his will? How how do you know God's will? Folks, you know way more about God's will than Jacob ever did. Folks, we have this book right here full of promises from God, full of revelations of His will. You ever read it? Friends, I'm concerned that the reason why some of you have weak and ineffective and powerless prayer lives is that you don't know His will because you aren't in His Word. You're you're floundering around in your prayers and nothing is happening and your words are just bouncing off the ceiling. Why? Because you don't know this book, so you can't pray God's promises back to him. The reason why some of you, and I've been here before in my own life, the reason why some of you are so bound up in fear and and, and your prayers give you little comfort is that you don't know what God has said. And so you can't say with Jacob with confidence, but you have said, O Lord. This is what you have said. And what you have said, Lord, now do. You can't do that if you don't know what he has said. And Jacob, after years of fighting and striving and conniving, now throws himself at the mercy of God and the promises of his word. He finally takes refuge not in his own schemes, but in God. And by the way, what I was just saying about prayer, I do not say it to you as one who has it all together. This is all coming out of my convictions and the things that I'm learning and the things that God is dealing with with me about in my own heart. I'm a fellow sinner and struggler just like you. 
Jacob has been seeking reconciliation with Esau. That was his goal at the beginning of this chapter. And that's a good thing. That's a good impulse in his heart. But what Jacob here is experiencing in this desperate moment is the hard truth that before he can develop a right relationship with his brother, he must first develop a right relationship with God. As Paul Tripp once said, relationships are first fixed vertically before they are ever fixed horizontally. Or to put it another way, before Jacob can really do business with Esau, he must first do business with God. And that was not on Jacob's agenda. Because Jacob didn't realize, he didn't even realize how much he needed this. But God in his merciful wisdom has allowed the fear of Esau to come into Jacob's life to break him down, to bring him to his knees, to to weigh down that burdened conscience even more and get him to this point. And, And what's the result? The result is a confession of sin and a heightened realization of God's grace and a desperate dependence and resting on God's Word and His Word alone. And when you get to that place, well, now you'll see God really work and really move in your life. I wonder if you're open to that truth, open to receiving that that kind of fruit in your life as you go through your own trial right now, because God's purpose in your trial is not to destroy you, but it is to bring you to your knees It is to bring you to your knees in complete and utter dependence on Him. Folks, we are so afraid, and and I'm, I'm right here with you, we are so afraid of losing all the other things in life that we are holding on to and relying on that we think will give us peace and safety and security. And the sweet irony is, is that when you let those things go, or when God removes them from your hands, it is at that point that all you have to hold on to is God and God alone. And it is there, brothers and sisters, that we find that there is no better and no safer and no more secure place to be. And, and, we're, and we will see the climax of Jacob learning that lesson next week. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're, you're wanting a right relationship with God, Sins of the past coming back to haunt you. You've got to start where Jacob started. You've got to recognize, like Jacob, that you are totally unworthy. And that if you stand before God on the basis of your own merit, you are hopelessly doomed. You have nothing in and of yourself to commend yourself to God. And if you're honest about it, you know it. You know it. You know that you're an unworthy sinner deserving of nothing but God's anger and wrath. And if Jacob's fear of being in the hands of Esau is a daunting thing when his sins catch up with him, how much more the prospect of a sinner in the hands of an angry God when your sins catch up with you? And in that, there is cause for great fear. But there is good news. The gospel tells you that God has mercifully provided a way to be made right with God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Jacob, came into the world as a man to pay the price for the sins of man. The punishment for sin that we deserve was placed on Him. That's why He died on the cross, so that whosoever would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and follow Him as Lord and Master would be forgiven. And the way to receive that gift of salvation is to take the path that Jacob took, to abandon all hope in yourself, 
all hope in your plans and your merit and your strength and instead completely throw yourself upon the mercy of God and His promises. As we just sung about just a few minutes ago, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. If you're here as a believer, throwing yourself upon the mercy of God and His promises isn't meant to be just a one-time thing when you initially come to Jesus. It's meant to be a way of life. You don't just need God's grace for salvation. You need it forever. And you need to continually bank all of your hopes on His promises and on His Word, where He says in His Word, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. But to the degree that you are relying on yourself, you will never experience the peace and comfort that comes with those promises. And you'll continue to be bound up and controlled by fear and anxiety as you navigate the trials of life. But to the degree that you will humble yourself, you will begin to increasingly experience the sense of stability and security that God offers His people. It's not a freedom from affliction. It's not, not from, uh, uh, from affliction. Bible promises affliction. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Not freedom from affliction, but a strength and preservation through the affliction. And even blessing in the midst of it as He continues to humble you and help you rely not on yourself, but on God who raises the dead. As the psalmist says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's good news for fearful people. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this Word. I pray, Father, that it is going forth and encouraging hearts this morning. And Father, I pray that You would help us to be a people that would have a greater sense of our desperate need for You, not just for salvation, but to live. That we need You day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, millisecond by millisecond, we are dependent on Your grace. And You are generous to give it. So Father, Build us more and more into a people that are driven by, sustained by, and empowered by your grace. Thank you, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.